Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media. Any questions you have about that? Uh, and uh, our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about audio and video over networks. So how do we deal with these protocols? How do we get our audio and video bits from one side of the Ethernet to the other? So uh, we're going to be talking about that. It's really important for both cloud production as well as efficient production in-house. In, in so uh, we'll be talking about all of those things in the second hour. So if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw it into Makana uh, and uh, we'll get to it in the second hour. And if you've got questions for the first hour, general discussion about anything around digital media production, go ahead and throw it in right now. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Courtney, what do we have? Well, we have Tim Holm from San Lorenzo, California asking, he says, I'm a newbie to this. A VIXA CTS certification, is it worth pursuing? Are there other basic certs that would be helpful for me to advance my knowledge level for media production? Go ahead, Jason. I don't know anyone who's been hired because they have a certification. Um, this is just one of these weird hodgepodges of things where if you want to pursue knowledge, then you know you get a sheet of paper as, as a result. Sure, great. Uh, but there's there's no one certification that really jumps out to me. Um, just start asking questions and, you know, then see what you can learn. You had Ronnie? Well, you can join the office hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Uh, certifications are usually so that you, you can try to have something on your on your uh, resume that that some people will think is important. Uh, as Jason said, in our industry, I don't know that many people that a certification has mattered. Um, there's definitely industries where in IT where they look for specific certifications. Um, there are, I will say that for many people, if you don't have the you know the piece of paper from Audinate that says you know how to use Dante. Um, people will not think that you know how to use Dante, <laughs> but that's free. <laughs> so it's just it's just something you need to go through. So I, I would say that the number one related, especially to today's course, it would be something like the Dante certification. Jeff, you were going to say something about that. That's exactly what I was going to say, was Dante certification is the first thing I ask in an interview, honestly. Yeah. It just saves well, a lot of time. Second, but yeah. And, and that comes down to, and and, and Avixia may, Avixa may have some great certifications that might make a difference. I know that uh, I do know people who have gone through the AWS certification and found those to be fairly useful as far as not so much that they needed to have the piece of paper, but that it really carefully got them through all the infrastructure of really understanding how AWS works. And so that might be another one to look at from that type of thing. When it comes to actual video and audio production, I haven't seen very many certifications that um, have been anything that anyone's paying attention to. I think partially because there just haven't been a lot of great courses in that area, and partially because the industry is moving so quickly that whatever certification you had a year ago is probably not useful now. So I think that's the, that's the real challenge. Uh, next question. From uh, Stephen Kimbrough in uh, Berkeley, California. He says, anyone paying attention to the Eurovision Song Contest and the camera moves they're doing? It is apparent that they've worked carefully with each act and have them hit their marks so that the camera can catch them perfectly. Yeah, the um, uh, this is something that has been... Um uh, refined by Eurovision, uh, they I think it's there's a note here uh, that they use Q uh, Pilot um, to achieve this, and so basically, when you look at Eurovision, uh, and I've actually seen Q Pilot at IBC, they have a little booth <laughs> that they're showing how it works, but it's set up to just run the switcher, like so. It is it is all pre-run, 
the you're watching something that is 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 very organized and very rehearsed. The camera operators know where they need to be. The queue is just running. There's not a live person cutting that show, you know, cutting those acts. It's just it's just automated all the way through with Cue Pilot, and um, and basically it just it just it, everyone knows where they need to be at the time that they need to be there, and it's it's kind of an incredible system. I, I find that it um, when I watch it, I feel like they kind of wrung the life out of it. <laughs> You know, like the attempt to make it so uh, organized. And so basically what they're trying to do is do a pre-edit live. You know, so they're doing it live so you can vote on it. But they're trying to have it have the feel of what they could have done perfectly. And I and I guess I feel like it's always, they, they've kind of rung, rung all the, I don't know, something, they've lost something <laughs> in that area. But it is impressive to, to watch that. Now, next question. Next one comes in from uh, Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. He says, I've switched out my Blackmagic Design Pocket 6K for a Sony A6400. says, the autofocus is amazing, but I've noticed it continually breathes ever so slightly. Is that just what it does, or is there a setting that can be tweaked? I'll go, John. There is a focus area setting that can be changed, so it's not so wide. You can focus it more towards your face, which shouldn't be moving that much in frame. So you'll probably reduce the amount of uh, tempting focusing that it's doing uh, just so it doesn't miss anything. You can also set it to slow versus fast. That will reduce the number of times it's actually trying to autofocus itself. Yeah, and we had that question yesterday, I think, for from, from FX30s, uh, same problem. But uh, I, I haven't had that problem, but I think that also... I think it depends on how far things are behind you or around you as well. So what what can it see there? Um, the distance between me and the back background that I have here is probably eight feet. So it's it's a long way back. Um, and I think that makes it easier for the autofocus to figure out what it should be looking at. Uh, next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. He says, has anyone tried live streaming in Discord? Best practices? Client will not accept just linking to YouTube. Thanks. Uh, there is a, I think the, the one thing to look at is the maximum number of people. So you may need to use nitros to get you up to up to 300, I think is the top, but I think it takes like all the nitros to get there. Um, so that it's, um, so that, it, so that it's activated there. We've only done, I have to admit, we've only done it once. Um, and, uh, it was fine. Like it just, it's a little discord doing the, the streaming so far. My experience of discord, both with audio and video is it's kind of like, you're just, mashing something into something else that didn't really wasn't never was never designed for it and they're trying to get video and audio in there and it just doesn't feel like the platform is very fluid but the first thing that i would do is look at what nitros are required what level of nitros are required it's not that expensive it's just a bunch of them it's like 80 bucks or something um, a month or whatever to have that but then i think it'll get you to up to 300 people next question this one is from uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, when you're watching a TV, how do you know what frame rate is being used? I'll go ahead, Courtney. Well, sometimes it's hard. It depends on the TV you're watching. It depends on who you're, whether you're watching streaming or whether you're watching broadcast. Uh, a lot of times on a TV, it'll have an info button on the remote, which when you press that, it'll show you a lot of times what resolution and what frame rate, hopefully, depending upon the TV you're watching. Sometimes it'll say 1080i or 720p. Uh, and it varies because sometimes uh, the networks will transmit stuff at 30 normally, uh, but on streaming services, they can go at 24. So 
uh, that's also dependent. It's also dependent on what your TV is set to. If your TV set has a filmmaker mode or an optimized mode, it'll interpolate and deliver a higher frame rate than it's receiving. So it's receiving 24 P uh, on some films. It will actually interpolate if you have it set to optimize or uh, uh, interpolate. Uh, otherwise uh, it'll have something like Samsung's have a filmmaker mode, which uh, delivers it back to whatever frame rate is coming in and takes off all the optimization and all the interpolation. So you'll have to look through your TV and uh, look for anything that displays the uh, info coming in, you know, in, in YouTube, they have stats for nerds, which you can turn on and your YouTube viewer, a lot of times it'll put all the stats up there and it'll tell you what the incoming uh, frame rate resolution is. So that's another way to check. Go ahead, Chris. <clears throat> Excuse me. Back in the days where we used to shoot computer screens with cameras, I knew a kid who could put his head next to the screen like this and he could look at it and he could tell you the refresh rate that the computer was set at. It was astonishing. Mike Massey. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, um, if, if you're watching YouTube, it's 30 frames or 60 frames. <laughs> that, that's, those are the two that the player supports. So, um, so it's one of those two frame rates there. Uh, if you are, um, I, I have my Apple TV set to use the, the native, whatever's, whatever's being used by the system. But what that means is that every time I go to a new show, it, it's, it, it's, it's running in 30 or 60 or 120, I don't know which, um, during the interface. But what, then when you go to most shows and they're 24, it has to reset for the camp, for the TV. And so there's like this two-second wait while it renegotiates from one to the other. But it's worth it <laughs> to, to not have the interpolation there. So, um, you know, most things that you see that are narrative are going to be 24. That's kind of a legacy um, opinion that most of the filmmakers have there. So, so you're going to see 24, 23, 98. And then uh, most TV is somewhere in the 30 you know, like live TV is going to be a lot of times it's, it's still generated as I. So when you're watching it, you're, you're watching it a oftentimes a slightly soft version because they throw away one field and scale up the other one. Um, they, they used to try to deinterlace, but it turned out to be the scalers on the systems is cheaper and more effective than the deinterlacing process. <laughs> so they found that it was easier to take a, a half resolution frame and scale it up than it was to try to merge the two together. So, um, so you kind of, you, you tend to see something that is slightly softer than it could be. Um, next question. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. He says, I've noticed in the DaVinci Resolve 18.5 beta to change log that it mentions two times enhanced superscale al algorithm. Do we know what this does yet? Has anyone experimented with this? Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I've played with it. Um, what it's essentially doing is using um, the, uh, what's it called? The, oh, what's the name of the engine? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Basically, it's, it's, um, it's a really direct to the metal way to, to upscale. And then it gives you the option of sharpening or, you know, having more predictive movement. But it, it's just, it's a really, really good way to, to get from 1080p to 4K, for example. Next question. Next one comes in from uh, Jack Rappel in uh, Brackenridge, Colorado. He says, what can you tell us about second audio program, SAP, and descriptive video services, DBS, and content available to Braille readers? You know, um, 
only a little <laughs> that, that, that were, you know, a lot of times these, these second audio programs can be, you know, you can have a lot of other things in a descriptive video is really descriptive video services, I believe are descriptive. Um, they, these are looking at the video and describing it for people who are obviously low sight or no sight. Um, and, uh, so those are the, that's what you're looking at there. Um, I think that second audio program is related to that as far as providing that there. Um, and I don't know what content is available for Braille reading, but one, one thing I will say is that we're, you know, the education over the summer, the education um, hour is going to go on hiatus. They, they take the summer off like the rest of the teachers in the U.S. And, um, and they're, um, so they're going to take the, 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 uh, the summer off. But we are going to be doing a lot of accessibility. Um, possibly all of those Saturdays will be dedicated to accessibility. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be talking about um, descriptive uh, audio. We're going to talk about uh, languages. We're going to talk about captions. We're going to talk about a lot of those things. So we've got a great um, a set of uh, experts in, in store for that for the summer. So it should be very good. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. And he says it's interesting that Pro Tools... Uh, a studio-oriented digital audio workstation is used for processing the live 5.1 mix for NAB. Wouldn't a live-oriented mix engine be easier to work with for this use case? Alexander? Well, Douglas, you're right that it is commonly used in recording studios and those types of applications. But, I mean, to find easier to use, it comes down to workflow. What do you, what do you have experience with? So... You know, if that's if Pro Tools is what you have experience with, then you're probably going to end up using Pro Tools. And actually, Pro Tools is act, is used in live scenarios quite often. In fact, I know the recent Dream Theater tour; they had a Pro Tools rig with um, guitar amps sending MIDI triggers uh, to a Pro Tools session um, that would that would actually um, automatically change the settings on the amplifier. So it would change from clean to distortion, depending on where it was in the song. So Pro Tools rigs are actually used live quite often, more than you probably think. And go, Jason. I just have to add that if you ever have the opportunity to see Dream Theater live, they are amazing. Yeah, there there are some other uh, live processing systems, and we may we may use those in the future. We're we're talking to a couple companies about that. Um, the real issue is is that um, a, a lot of times Pro Tools ha just has a lot of tools that are available to it: plugins, tools, infrastructure that makes it a lot easier to um, to actually do the surround work um, to put it into Atmos. That that has that's a much more developed pipeline. We've had had some issues with Pro Tools Live, <laughs> so we're testing it right now. Uh, I, I would feel better with hardware, um, but because typically we have clocking issues eventually with with Pro Tools that kind of just jumps out of nowhere. Um, but a lot of that, our, because our system is pretty well defined and we haven't really had those issues, I think we're in pretty good state. Stead, um, but we you know we have had Pro Tools kind of jump off the rails a couple times on some pretty big systems. Um, and so we, we do worry about it a little bit, but the tools are really well-defined well, well defined in Pro Tools. Go ahead, Jeff. I'm actually going to be doing some testing with the SSL software uh, very soon. And uh, they are 100% targeting this market, without a doubt, for broadcasters, and especially in the cloud workflows. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be really interesting. I, we, we definitely expect to see, we think that we're, you know, on the front edge of Atmos and and five dot one and and all the other surround um, opportunities, and so that's why we're that's why we're doing it, um, and we'll, we'll talk a lot more about it. But I think that Pro Tools right now is is probably the best solution that we have um, to to make this happen. Next question coming in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. He says, "Where can you find pricing for AWS Media Host for live encoding?" 
it is in the media live. There should be a, a, a price list there. The easiest way, I have to admit, I read a lot of things on on um, AWS. It's not very expensive. But what I would do is, is I find the easiest way to figure this out because it's not $20 or $80 or whatever, is I just run a stream. I, I, I run the configuration that I'm planning to use for two hours. Like one hour is enough, but two hours just to get, to make sure I'm not missing anything. I just turn it on and I run it and then I see what my charge is. And that will tell you, that that will accurately tell you. Sometimes you look at something and you start making calculations and it's so much work. All you got to do is just turn a stream on and see how, how it, what it turns out. I, I find that to be much easier than trying to make the calculation because there's a lot of things that go into it. Oh, I, I'm using UHD instead of link. Like I'm using a UHD link, which costs more um, for some things or the, or the regular link. I'm doing HDR. I'm doing, I'm using Dolby Vision. I'm doing, there's a whole bunch of things that, and all of those are like little numbers that get added to your stream. At first, I hated it because I was like, "Oh, I'm just getting nickel and dime." But what's really nice is I, I'm not buying an appliance that I have in my in my office for eighty thousand dollars or whatever. I'm just putting it in the cloud and paying when I need it, and it's turned out to be much less expensive. I go, Jeff. Alex, a few years ago, hearing what I just heard out of your mouth is uh, almost kind of like it was made up. You know, it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, it, so the, the encoding to me, you know, basically the cloud has kind of caught up with the appliances for what I needed. So a couple of years ago, I was doing lots of Atmos and Vision on appliances and that tool wasn't available inside of um, the AWS. So what happens is if you want to be on the front end of the development of Elemental, for instance, you need to have the appliance because the appliance gets updated before the cloud gets updated. So, so you, you know, so when I'm, when I was doing stuff that was really on the, you know, really on the bright bleeding edge, there was no way for me to use the the cloud to do the encoding, but now, you know, it's all settled in and I'm, I haven't been needing to use any of the brand new tools. And so. regarding your pricing thing, I, I completely agree with you on that. You need to run tests because the egress charges, uh, or the, what we, frequently underestimated when you start throwing out a, for us we're not necessarily using media live exactly but uh with aws especially when you start throwing out a whole lot of multi-viewers and a, and a lot of extra stuff that you just think oh i can do it let's just go ahead and do it the egress charges definitely rack up yeah so if you're and, and specifically if you're sending it out to like 10 youtube you know youtube channels or three and three facebook channels and a bunch of other things like that you're getting you're getting hit with a buck 50 uh you know or or, or buck 20 per output you know so you just have to be kind of careful of and that, that can start to add up and that's where appliances start to come back into hand because you know i can send i can put it into an elemental and send it out to many 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 outputs all at one time and it, it and if i'm doing that all the time every day which we used to do um then then i I would need to do that. Like this show was not cost effective in the cloud because it's so many hours of work that it's do that, that it's running. Um, so that's the big thing when we talk about like this show, we're going to eventually get into the cloud, but we have to figure out the pricing or somebody else has to figure out the pricing. We have to figure out the model for it. For while that hardware is expensive, it would be an enormous amount of money for us to turn this on, um, you know, every day and, uh, and do it all in the cloud. Um, next question. Comes in from uh, Jack Rupel in Brackenridge, Colorado. He says, "Could you see Apple buying Unity, game content, USDZ content, and AR VR content creation could be centered on the Apple ecosystem and not PC fifteen hundred dollar GPU systems?" Go, Jason. I. I, I don't know what to say other than I simply don't. I think Apple has a long memory, and um, I, I think they would very much rather 
do something on their own and you know support things that they like um, rather than than buy buy something as large as Unity. Yeah, I think when you when Unity started arcing into the fifteen to twenty billion dollar valuation, that'd be the largest merger that Apple's ever had. Now they've dropped in price. I don't know what it is now, but it's still going to be more than what Beats was, and Beats was their largest acquisition to date. Apple doesn't have a history of large acquisitions with large numbers of people because it's hard to assimilate them, them folks into the thought process that Apple has. And so usually they're buying companies that are under a billion dollars. And that's, that's the, the kind of their MO. So I think it would be very unlikely, not impossible. If Apple, you know, Apple has been developing ob- obviously their own tools. So you have the, you know, a lot of the AR creator and, you know, those, those types of things that are there. You know, it, it's it's going to be really interesting. There is a lot of rumors floating around that Apple has spent an enormous amount of effort on ease of use for creating content and we don't know what that means, but um, but that is the, if Apple doesn't succeed at that in the first year, I think that you could see them looking at trying to buy Unity. They're definitely not going to buy Epic. <laughs> so so that's, that's not going to happen for a whole host of reasons. Um, for every but, reason, yes. Yeah, for every reason, <laughs> they're not going to buy Epic. Um, so Unity would be the only other real option to do that or develop it themselves. I think Apple would... Um, probably prefer to do it themselves, um, but it depends on how successful they are and whether they can get all the apps to kind of talk to each other. Um, I think it's going to be, I think in a couple of weeks, it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of tie-in. I, I think that there's a potential that Apple is going to have new coding platforms, new AR development platforms, in addition to feeding everything into with things like everything from keynote pages numbers, Final Cut, Motion, all of those things could generally, could could be content creators inside of that platform. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how far they take that or if they take it anywhere. Um, and we'll find out in about three weeks. All right, uh, next question. Oh, before I go to the next question, just a reminder that you can ask more questions. Uh, we're just cutting through these like butter. And so if you want to ask more questions, go ahead and throw them in. General questions for the first hour, uh, questions about networking and AV over network for the second hour. And of course, make sure to vote on those questions so that we know which ones you want us to answer first. Uh, Go ahead, next question. All right, coming in from Alexander Knight here on the panel and from Vancouver, British Columbia. says, I'm looking at these newer tube LED lights that run on battery. My application is to mount them on a pole and run them only on external power. Uh, do these typically run on battery, or can I get ones without? Go ahead, John. These do typically run on battery. What you'll find is the included power supplies. I usually don't actually provide enough power to run them, uh, at least at full tilt, uh, while they're pl- while they're um, turned on. Uh, they're used to usually just running for a charge. Um, I also recommend probably stepping up maybe into the Pavo tubes. The six E's are only like twenty dollars more a unit. I don't know what that translates to in Canada, but um, it's definitely going to be a higher quality of light and something I'm I'm very comfortable using. Uh, and I do typically run them plugged in. I'm just running them at 40-50% of their total output power. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Pavo tube, is that a, the style of light or is that the manufacturer? Uh, Nanlite. Nanlite. Pavo Nanlite. Tubes. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll look into those. I've had this problem before. I brought this up uh, because I've used, I've experimented with some smart rig uh, uh, LED uh, lights that run on battery, and I tried to run it over USB power, and it would just after half an hour it'd get really hot, and then they would just go down from 100% to 60% brightness. Couldn't do anything about it. So the funny thing is, so I have I don't know how many of the six Cs, the six C Pavo tubes. We um, between me and oh, I know we probably have 30 of them floating around. 
Uh, we use them in our in our smallest kits, and they're they're just really easy to use. Um, the battery will last about two two and a half hours. So the USB power they don't handle um, USB C to USB C very well. In fact, they don't come with those cables. They're a USB-C input, but if you give them more than 2.4 amps, they stop charging. So, um, so it's it's a so what you have to do is <laughs> use old the old 2.4s. So if you put a one watt in, um, they won't last. Um, they'll just burn out. But if you put a 2.4, they'll last forever. Like you can leave them on forever. But if you put a USB-C that's capable of more watts then they don't charge at all. <laughs> so I've, I've learned this over in many hotel rooms because when you see me come in from a hotel room, generally I have those six Cs that I, that's what I'm using because they pack really well, except that they look like dynamite in your in your carry-on. So you, they, they do open it up because I have four of them. They're magnetic. So I have four of them like just, just uh, stacked together typically. And I use two of them for backlighting and two of them for, you know, some kind of key fill type thing. Um, th there is an app I haven't found that I was very successful with it, um, but it is a th there is an app to to run them as well. Um, but they're super simple, super easy to use, and um, I'm really happy with them. And they make all kinds of lengths. So the longest version of that is eight feet long. I think it's either six feet or eight feet long. They have these real so you can get lots of different length versions, obviously at different prices. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. When you put those lights in your carry on, I would recommend you don't wrap spare cables around them, or pack them with an alarm clock. I was about to say, get an analog <laughs> alarm clock and a wild coyote like this. This is um, long ago, but I, I, had a, I had an XL1, and, uh, you know, and I, had, I had six batteries with it. I think we had two XL1s. We had six batteries with it. And I set the six batteries in my carry-on, and I had six countrymen uh, you know, with the little, little, really thin little cables, I couldn't help myself. I, I just had to set all the batteries together and then set the countryman like right on top of it. So all the coiled wires were all over top of it. And then I just pushed it through just to see what would happen. And they, um, I got through the other side and the, and the, the, the guy, I could see it going through and it, man, it looked, it looked really devastating, um, in the, in the thing. And the guy goes, um, sir, um, we, 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 need to go. we opened can your bag. You, can I take you somewhere? We're going to go through your bag. And I didn't know that part of, Oakland Airport existed. Like we walked so far. Like I, I thought I was going to walk to LA. He took me to this space and he goes, um, "Can you describe what, what, what's in the bag?" <laughs> and I said, "It's some batteries and a mic cables and stuff like that." And he, and, he, and he very carefully he was like, he was like just moving around. His little hand is moving around. They he put you in up. the blast room, and he, Alex. <laughs> and you see him just he just like opens it up very slowly. Like this is the end of his life. He can't believe this is him. And he looks at it. He goes, "Oh, you can go." <laughs> I just, you know, just like, it was so funny. It was just, it was Did you not day. think to say that before you went on the long walk? No, I, I, because I've done fun. that too. I've, I had a box once where the guy opened it and he literally like took three steps back like this. And I said, <laughs> no. it's hard drives. You're okay. I, I, I was have, I, I, I was there early. I was having too much fun. So I just, <laughs> I just wanted to see where this went. Um, and so that was, that was a long time. I don't do that anymore. I'm usually too much rushed. The other one that you have to do with an Ozo, you have to, you have to tell them like, that's a 360 camera. Cause it looks like a, like the center of a nuke, a nuke, you know, like it just, it just has all these things all pointed right to the center. So, um, it's, it looks great on an x-ray. Anyway, next question. Coming in from, uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, has anyone taken DaVinci Resolve for the iPad around the block? You know, I haven't. I, I installed it, and I just really haven't. I opened it up, and I was like, oh, it was a little buggy when it 
on the first day. That's the first day I opened it. And I was like, oh, I can't quite get this to work. And then I put it, <laughs> I just set it back down. Um, I think that, I do think it's pretty amazing uh, that both Resolve and, and Final Cut in a couple of weeks will be available on an iPad. Um, and I think that what we're see, what we're about to see is a just an incredible explosion of using video on on the iPads. Um, and I think it's going to be really, really interesting in the fall. I think both companies will be competing for. I, I think the education corporate, um, education corporate, um, and social markets, which are about a thousand times bigger than Hollywood, um, is where uh, basically resolve and. Apple are going into a cage match, <laughs> as, as, as was said yesterday, I think, by somebody. Um, they're about to go, they're about to really compete heavily in that market for that, for those three markets, because those are the big ones. I think Premiere went down the wrong path with Rush. Uh, nobody that I've ever seen uses that application in the wild. Um, and so they thought that they'd build kind of a light version of it, and I don't think it worked. Um, Avid's definitely not going there. So I think it's really, I think it's going to be down to Apple and Resolve on the iPad. And I think that that's going to drive the industry a fair bit as well. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting, um, really interesting to see what happens in the fall. Next question. Uh, this one comes in from uh, Ketil Fla from Yersvold Tromsø. Hope I got that right. <laughs> no, I didn't. A mid-journey has started cutting off free users from generating their 25 images when the server load is too much. Do you think we are starting to see the end of the free trial period for AI? Go ahead, John. What I think you're seeing is just a prioritization of paid users over free users. I don't think it means the end of it. Uh, Adoption is going to require that free trials continue. It's the same way Microsoft never really cracked down on their Office products. is because they knew those same kids that were you know, using the software for free would be using it in office spaces everywhere. Um, so I think what you're going to just see is um, as capacity increases, as more people start paying for it, the free tier will become more stable. But right now you have a huge influx of users and they just want to make sure that the paid customers are getting what they they pay for before they lose anybody to another platform that is yeah, maintaining go. their system better. Yeah, go John. John's exactly right. They've got 15 million members on Discord right now. There's 1.4 million people online right now. And those, like like uh, Alex said yesterday, those NVIDIA cards are super, super expensive. So yeah, scalability I, is expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as a paid user, I'm really glad they're doing that. <laughs> so I pay, I pay a fair amount of money uh, to have my to have access, and um, it's very fast. Like I will say that as a fat, I'm on a fast setting with 5.1, and it's almost in, like it's gotten so fast for a paid user to to use it. I use it in production all the time. I use it for mostly for keynotes. I'm building a bunch of decks right now, and so. I'm amazed. Like, I just have to say that just to take this moment, like, I, I have so much fun sitting in and I, I'm making visuals. And what happens now is I just sketch them out what I want when I'm building a deck. And I just go, okay. And then I have to think about how to prompt that out. But And it takes me maybe 15 minutes, but I get these very or, completely original uh, images that just look amazing and they all fit together, you know? And, and it's just, it's, uh, it, I'm, just kind of stunned by it and i i don't even know what i did before that like i just i'm doing i've been doing it for six months for keynotes and um i don't even know how i did what i did before i had the ability to just render anything i want over white like that's the big thing is that i just gotten really good at rendering items um, as examples over a plain white background and with little shadows and all kinds of other things it's stunning next question another one in from uh, paul wallace in austin texas he says is there any way to view the face of your Apple Watch on a big screen? Go, Jason. 
Um, absolutely. By a big screen, I'm going to assume you mean a Mac, and um, it's two parts. So most people know how to get their iPhone through QuickTime onto, um, onto the Mac using, yeah, just QuickTime and generally a, a hard cable connection. If you go in on the iPhone to accessibility and then Apple Watch mirroring, um, you can just mirror your watch. And I mean, I can show you it's Here it is in real time. And there's, you know, here I am moving my watch around and there it is on the phone. That was a much better answer than mine. Mine was going to be if you take your phone and you point it at the at the watch, um, you know, you can put it, you know, point it at the watch and then and then airplay it to your to your Apple TV. You'll see the camera version of the watch. Jason's answer is better. Uh, next question from uh, Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, they say, can you configure a MixPre six? so that the mic inputs are fed to the computer's USB-C as a separate as separate channels. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Robin, I'm pretty sure you can do exactly what you want to do. It's, it's really important to remember that the MixPre uh, 6.2, I think is what you said, yeah, uh, it has multiple analog inputs, but it also has a lot of USB outputs. And so one of the things that you could do is, one of the things that I do actually, is I take my microphone, which is you know right here, it goes into my mix pre, and I send it out to uh, a couple of USB outputs, uh, bypassing everything else. So like in the my Unity comms setup, I just select the item called my mic, which I set up in loop loopback, and that's my mic. I mean, it's like a direct patch. And so, yes, I'm pretty sure that you can set each input to a separate output. Um, you might do a little loop back, but the routing inside the Mix Pre 6, super um, capable, complicated. Super capable, but complicated. It's, it's how you pick it. Yeah, it's how you pack. We were talking about this yesterday with the Scorpio and the fact that AES was hidden and Mickey astutely pointed out that they just figured out how to pack an enormous amount of features into a very small screen. And so that's the that's the challenge. What I really wish is that there was a USB connection, that the USB connection in the Mix Pre or in the Mix series would, or in all the sound device series, would have like an app that just opened it up so I had all the features in a bigger screen and I could just do all the things that I wanted to do. But I think part of that is that the ROI is very low for them because that the it, because they're focused on field recording and those field recorders, you know, are used to that, you know, and, and even, you know, are used to kind of going through that. And I, and I have to say that, you know, even back in the 788, when I was using it, I had, we had about four 788s and we, we figured out all the routing, you know, in the, in the, um, in the 788 so that we could do all this custom routing, mix minus, everything else that was in there. And when we went to a field recorder, they were like, I, they didn't even know those tools were in the, in the you know, that were hidden in there. And it was very much of a tap the wall and then pull this down and then turn this over here to get anything out of it. But Sound Devices has been really good at, at just stuffing stuffing feature sets in. It's just, it's, it's hard to find them. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. And if you're on a PC, uh, you may have to make sure you have your ASIO drivers loaded because those are the drivers that are needed for multi-channel USB input uh, on a lot of PCs. Maybe it comes with drivers if you install the drivers for that particular um, MixPre 6. It may load the ASIO drivers, but check to make sure you have those drivers loaded. Uh, then you should be able to get all the channels ISO. Next question. Comes in from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, has anyone used Nuendo? Uh, how would you compare it to Logic or Pro Tools? 
it's another it, 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 i would say it's another flavor um the folks that i that i worked with nuendo um that use nuendo just you know they're dedicated to it it's a religious conversation <laughs> they, they really really like the interface um and they're very uh, c- committed to it i i still i feel like it's just another version for me when i look at it i don't see it to be dramatically different i'm told that the surround some of the surround stuff is i don't know a lot of people seem to like it better than what they've seen in other other platforms but uh, but I can't, you know, it's, it's a, um, uh, it, to me, it's another, just another version of what we do. And if you like it, it most of the feature sets are, are pretty, pretty simple, uh, s- uh, similar to Pro Tools and, and, and a little bit to logic, probably a little bit more than logic and about the same as Pro Tools. Next question. Coming in from um, uh, Ketja Fla in Gersvold Tromsø. Uh, what are the panel's newest gadgets or software discoveries that has improved your quality of life? Uh, go ahead, Tom. Well, my newest gadget is from Ubiquity. It's called the Wizard, and it's a little gadget that works with your iPhone. Here I am scanning my uh, available networks in the neighborhood, and this whole thing is happening th- through this tiny little uh, magnetically attached receiver and spectrum analyzer. So that's what's new in my life. Love Go it. Ahead, I'm going to say for me, it's going to be my screen reader as a software. But what I mean by this is Apple, Google, and Microsoft, as far as uh, companies that are making software for uh, Windows, for example, are improving things. So uh, we're moving into this AI world soon, too. So uh, the screen reader and just getting imagery or getting information back quickly is definitely a game changer. And then to be productive on your phone, on your computer, um, you know, and take it elsewhere with the same process. And you have all three platforms to choose from with Apple, uh, with Google Talkback, and then with Windows, we have JAWS. So definitely the screen reader has changed the game for me and uh, a, a huge help. And I love all the new changes coming along. Go, Jason. One more vote for the Ubiquity Unify Wizard. Um, very cool piece of tech. Not the most advanced Wi-Fi scanner uh, I've ever seen, but for 99 bucks. It is spectacular. And Courtney? Well, it hasn't arrived yet, but I was supposed to get it yesterday. I got all excited. My Creality K1 high-speed 3D printer was supposed to arrive. Uh, and then I got a notice from UPS saying, we're rescheduling your delivery. So hopefully it'll come in the next two days and it will <laughs> speed up my 3D printing by a factor of 10. I'm hoping that uh, I'm going to be able to... Uh, uh, oh, good, Alex. Yeah, just the one quick addition to my lighting back there, that little old-timey light there provided by IKEA. <laughs> you know, I, I think that I think that the thing most recently that I've that I've used that has been the, the most payoff is this little small rig uh, V-mount battery. Uh, this is a little V-mount battery. I know there's a lot of people that make them. This one has um, both uh, nine and twelve volt barrels here that come out the end. So instead of just the D-tap, it's got that as well as USB. So you can literally charge your laptop with it. If it's in there, um, you can also charge uh, a lot of other thing, other anything that's got the barrel connectors on it. Um, it and it, uh, a switcher, you know, and uh, it, I was kind of surprised by it. And it's got like, you know, it tells you exactly how much, how much power is in the front, which is, uh, which has been useful, um, you know, for, for me. So anyway, I was kind of surprised by, by this um, being as cool as it is. Um, we're also, I'm hopefully this weekend going to be trying out 
a zoom room uh, with four USB cameras with a with zoom a zoom room with four USB cameras and a Mac Mini Pro to see um, if we can do build this little mini kit that lets us do like how tos and and other things like that. We're gonna, we're gonna play with that this weekend, so that might be another one on the list. Next question from Ronnie Hofsey in uh, Tromso, Norway. Again, anyone using the Mix Pre with noise assist in live corporate conference event streaming to clean up stage noise. You know, we haven't used it there mostly because we need more channels. Um, so when we use it in those areas, uh, what we're using, um, what I've used in the past for those is a DNS-8. So that's a Cedar uh, DNS-8. So you can basically send, you can send out um, eight channels and then individually do noise reduction on them and then bring them back in. The, the real challenge with the Mix Pre and with the, even with the um, the eight series, is that there's just not enough channels available to that for that processing. Uh, I really wish I could do that, and I have thought about the idea of using a mix pre for every mic, <laughs> so that I could so that I could I could do that. It actually might be the same cost as a as a DNS eight, <laughs> so if I just did it for every mic. Um, but so far, we haven't stacked it up that way, um, and we've used the DNS eight. Um, the only thing I'll say is make sure that you uh, turn the software off on the DNS eight before you. Uh, before you go into the live show. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, a question for Alex. A follow-up is, is the uh, noise assist and the auto mix usable at the same time or are they exclusive of each other if you have both plugins? Um, I don't know. I've never done both of those in a mix pre. You know, usually when we're doing a live show with, as soon as we go into live shows, we use the mix pre's and I use, the, so I use the Scorpio for some, you know, some events where we need more I.O., but the mix pre's we're really using as a recorder for one person connecting to a computer. Uh, once we move, the, we haven't really used, and I, I have, have almost no experience with the six and the, we have a whole bunch of threes. I have no, almost no experience with the six and the 10. Um, so I have that or, or I have the eight series, the Scorpio. The, with the mix pre's, we just haven't really um, used, used them in that format. Um, typically we're using the, for you an auto mix, we're typically on a Yamaha or a Behringer. Uh, next question. Just kind of wondered if the auto mix would fight against the. I think it, you know, Mickey says that it's, uh, that both of them will work at the same time. From Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, he says, has anyone used any of the video analysis tools from Video Clarity? And he has a link to it. I think that we, this is the one that we were looking at. There's a, um, there's been a couple of them that um, I haven't used video clarity specifically, um, but we are, you know, trying to find, you know, a variety of these. There's a couple different companies. Um, I'm trying to think of the, there's a company that we, that uh, was bought by IMAX and I just can't think of its name at the moment that does a lot of video analysis for quality um, for, you know, end coding. And I, and I just, I'll try to, we may go back to it and I'll mention it, but, um, but I, but I, it's, it's not video clarity. It's another one, but it, that's the one that I've seen the most of. Um, next question. From uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, uh, what are some chat GPT enabled apps that you would install on your iPhone? Good, John. Most of the generative AI stuff I do is on my PC. I'm, I'm generating either art or long letters. And so I do that on my workstation, but I do have the Bing app installed on my iPhone, which has OpenAI 4.0 built into it. And you can run that just like you do normally in Bing. So that's about it right now. Next question. From uh, Matt 
um, Hawkinson in Brookings, South Dakota, says, I'm having a problem with interview lighting where people's skin looks wet due to skin complexion or bone structure. How do I soften these hot spots without killing light output? I only have an Aperture 120D as a key light set on full power. Go, Jason. All right. There are a number of ways to address this, but if I think what's going on is in fact going on, you, you, you've got shine. I mean, you know, normal, natural skin oil. Um, this gets made worse because in general, people aren't used to being under hot lights. They get sweaty and they get nervous and they're already nervous and then you put lights on them. Um, the way that I've addressed this is with um, the little oil um, oil suck-up things. Um, I believe Alex at one point said that uh, little, the, the toilet things, you know, the toilet seat liners in a total pinch will I actually that, work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not the, a great idea, very unprofessional. So, yeah. No, I would say I haven't done that for a decade, at least. Um, the, uh, I use these right here when I'm doing broadcast. This is a, a natural oil-absorbing sheets by Zoroms. I don't know, it's something on you, on, and it comes in a whole bunch of little sheets, but they do look like, like uh, what you see... Um, Jason was talking about. They, they do look like what you would have on a to toilet paper. Um, but you just simply, I, you probably won't see much of it here, but if I just put them on here like this and just hold it there for a second and it will be, um, it'll pick up some some oil, not, not a lot in this case. Um, but yeah, these are, these are you get these little packs and you, you can run them on there. There's another one, Mac uh, Makeup makes thing, a thing called Mattify, which is almost impossible to find. Uh, but if you get those, those are, you can, it's a little, it, it's like a makeup thing you put on and it just, gets rid of all of that. Um, th and that's how you treat, I don't use that every day because, or I don't use it often because I don't want to put put it on my skin all the time. Um, so if I was doing it for one person, I, I, we use Mattify a lot for that. But otherwise, um, absorption paper um, seems to work pretty well for interviews. The big problem you have is that you have a, a small light source. Um, so the, the 120 is very powerful, but it also is, um, it, it's a smaller source. Um, what you may want to look at if, if the only thing you have is that aperture is the aperture has a lantern. I think it's a lantern 360 is what it's called. And um, you can, it, it, I think it's a standard Bowens mount, but it, you basically have, it's like a huge soft box. What you want to do is push that through something that's much larger. So an example is the light that I'm under right now is three feet by five feet. So not, not three, uh, it's a, it's a three by five foot frame. I used, um, uh, maker pipe uh, connections and I and I just got some EMT and I just connected it to a big square. So there's a big square here that I, or not square, rectangle. Um, it's three by five feet and I've got some lights behind it. So those lights hit that and then they're softened out before they hit me. And that's really the key. Um, you might be able to, with a 120, it may be powerful enough to get a four by four frame. Um, you could just get a four by four frame or a two by two frame and then you just put that light on the other side and you and you hit it. And it's going to give you this nice, you know, you just pull it back or, or focus it until you're filling up that frame. And you're going to find that the lighting intensity on your interviewees is dramatically better. Um, and get two of those and you're really in a good good place. But if you only have one, the cheapest way for you to go is to buy a frame. It's a, you just go to, you know, you order it on film tools or whatever. Get a frame, put some pearl, you know, or, or you can even, mine is like some cloth, like, I think a scrim cloth that I bought on Amazon for $15, you know, with the, with that frame. And, and again, the total amount with maker pipe probably cost me with the, with the cloth probably cost me 20 bucks <laughs> to, to do that. And I've got a big source on the back. So I would take a look at building those frames or, or buying them. Uh, next question. 
from uh, Douglas Carmichael. He says, could you have conceivably used an Allen & Heath D-Live DMO instead of the Behringer X32 in the NAB pipeline? Does D- uh, the D-Live does have automatic mic mixing. Yeah, go ahead, Ronnie. Well, um, the X32 also have uh, automix, so... Yeah. Well, and also the, the, the D-Live, I think almost all the, the D-Lives are considerably more expensive. I mean, I think that's the other the other issue that we have here. Go ahead, Jeff. I'd say the DMO is, or DM0 is actually very uh, nice piece of kit. I have a couple of studios that we felt put it together and uh, whenever, especially with the Dante shortage everywhere, they, they really are nice. And uh, they've helped in a lot of uh, virtual meetings that they're doing with them. But doesn't it really just come down to what was in the studio and what hardware was there? I mean, yeah, you could use anything if you have it, but uh, X32s well, is what was in the workflow. And the DMO, the other the other issue is is that it it is um, there's no I/O on it. I mean, so while we use a lot of Dante, I wouldn't buy one. I wouldn't buy one for the studio that didn't have a lot of analog I/O. <laughs> like I just won't like that's not going to do that. So um, so the uh, so I, I need to be able to to I use those things. So um, for a variety of things, in fact, the other way we use the X32s is as a stage box. We just throw them up there with a Dante card and they, that becomes a stage box for us. So they're multi-use. Um, I used to own a lot of Allen and Heath um, so, uh, mixers and that's why I don't own them anymore. You know, so, so anyway, so I, I, I just, you know, I, I'm not going to say anything else. I just, it, it just, it wasn't a great experience for me. Um, next question. Comes in from uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas for uh, Alexander Knight, and I guess another panelist. What is audio GPT? How does it work? What are its capabilities and limitations? And what does this mean for the future of making music? Yeah, I think we addressed this question a little earlier or earlier in the week. Um, you know, audio GPT is, it looks pretty interesting. Um, it is, oh, Alex, did I, I think I mistake Alex for me um, in that area and I took it down. So uh, did you raise your hand, Alex? No, you didn't. No, I did not. But I haven't. Uh, I know he was directing that at me, but I haven't had a chance to look at this one yet. Yeah, it's it it's still work in progress, but it, it should be able to do a lot of things. It, it, they they talk about it being able to look at an image and generate music, uh, have you give it text, and it generates uh, sounds. Um, there's a lot of things that are interesting, but it ha- it's still pretty early on. Both the audio and the video generation um, is still getting started. Next question. Uh, yeah, I looked at some samples. It was pretty crude. Douglas Carmichael says, in many Asian countries, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, um, there are multiple unit residential buildings that are also offices and retail in the same building. Could this same model succeed in the U.S. and Canada in light of the rapidly growing urban population? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Douglas, this is something I'm really passionate about. Um, yeah, it can succeed uh, if you want to live in a big city. So, like... This is uh, this is Bay Street in Emeryville, and what you have is you have retail at the bottom, and and you know businesses, and then up above, you have uh, housing. Uh, there's also actually happens to be uh, an Apple store right here. Um, you could do it. The units up above are about a million dollars, and you know some people want it, it. I I think you need to be. You need to ask yourself a question. You know, what is the thing that's most important to you? I, I know I've heard Alex talk about. You know, he lives where he lives because it has good schools for his kids. That's super important. Uh, I, I, if, I live where I live because my wife wants to live here. 
Like that, but, that, that, that's the, but you also have good schools. You also have she, good she schools. She wants to live here because of good schools, yeah. Some people uh, want to have, you know, uh, 50 different restaurants that they can walk to. And those people want to live in cities. Uh, some people want to, you know, go outside and pet their horse. That's going to be awkward uh, in, in a condo on Bay Street in Emeryville. Uh, so, but I will tell you this, and this is something that I learned uh, about 12 years ago. The number one thing you can do to improve your quality of life is to minimize your commute. I think a lot of people have just uh, decided that, well, you know, it's just the way it is. I have to get in the car and I have to drive an hour or an hour and a half to get to my job in the morning, especially if you live in a place where uh, things are really expensive and a lot of people have to live on the outskirts of town or a, a, a big population center. But minimizing your commute to life, which we all did three years ago with COVID, uh, um, it's, I believe it's the number one thing you can do to improve your quality of life. I have to say, I agree. I, I, I've had some jobs where I'm like an hour, 20 minutes, hour and a half away. And sometimes with traffic, sometimes it gets to two hours each way. Yeah. And it was just like, I just, I was like, I can't believe I, 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 and it literally kept me from taking, you know, wanting to work there <laughs> like permanently. What's interesting is we begin to make excuses for it. I used to work with a director. I was her TD and she used to say, oh no, it's not so bad. You know, it's, it's hour and a half to get home. It's, it's kind of like that applause shot at the end of the show. It allows me to like relax and, and wind down. And all I could think of is, really? Traffic so many, allows the, you to relax and wind down. Okay, yeah. that's an interesting take. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, you should move to Hollywood if you want to see these Douglas because they're all over the place. What's happened in the last, uh, oh, 10 years or so is that they've been buying up a lot of this old property that is has been just mom and pop uh, little tiny shops in a strip strip center, you know, with uh, four or five shops and a little parking in front of it. They're buying up that lot and they're turning it into what's called retail plus four because there's height restrictions in Hollywood, but they'll put retail on the bottom floor. They'll displace all those little mom and pop stores that have been paying rent that's fairly low since the 20s and uh, replace them with luxury condos, about four stories, four stories of luxury condos above retail that is priced out of the market for any of the mom and pop stores that were there before. So what ends up uh, and the uh, price of these condos is such that uh, the only people that can afford them are investment uh, bankers and groups that lease them out uh, to Airbnb and so on and and nefarious gangsters and, you know, people that have a lot of cash that they want to launder. <laughs> no, so no, uh, that's, what's, that that's my been. criticism of Hollywood <laughs> right now. And they're going up all over and they're about 60% vacant right now. So it's not necessarily a good thing. Good, Ronnie. Well, in Norway, uh, I can't speak for U.S. and Canada, but in Norway, it's uh, pretty normal. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, shops in the first uh, first level, offices in second and third, and uh, living quarters uh, on top of that. Uh, in, in addition to that, we probably have a park or two in the middle and maybe a kindergarten. So very compact living. Good, Jeff. Hey, I travel in a, a lot, as you guys know, and, and uh, I see a lot of these around, and I would say the majority of them empty uh, on the housing side. Uh, and even on the retail side, on the bottom, they're probably only 50 to 60% full too. Uh, I just, I think it's a build it and there it's, they're all thinking, oh, we'll build it and they will come. And I just don't feel like they are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about this um, for the last 25 years and urban development is kind of a hobby of mine and uh, or thinking about the designs of those. And I think that 
it's almost impossible to fix the current cities. <laughs> so, so this is my this is my strong opinion is that you can't shove the what you're trying to do into a block system, you know, and into cars and everything else. Um, you know, since we have just a couple minutes here, but I think that you want to build them like this, run rail around it, have uh, you know underground, an underground rail, and then for these for these pieces here, what I would do is I would actually build them. Um, like a pyramid, but circular like this. And the reason you do this is because if you put walls between them, they can't, no one can see each other between the apartments. And so you have all these apartments and you put little greenery on them and they look like big Christmas trees all the way down the outside. And then you have all these apartments because the apartments want, um, the apartments want the windows, right? But the, the other stuff doesn't need, necessarily need it. And so if you think about it, you can put all these shops and everything else. You can leave this opened here so that rain comes down in here and it's all kind of nice. And if you put slots in it, the Romans figured this out, the air will blow through it. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite nice. Um, and But you can build all kinds of retail and everything else down in, into here um, to make it more efficient. And then down below, you have the rail to get to the other ones. Um, and I think that that is a, um, you need to build it all so that people can all live there. They can all have their kind of more open space. Um, but then you have a lot of the services that they'd want, the restaurants, the markets, the, you know, those types of things all in there. Um, it'd be highly efficient uh, in a few, in a, but I, you can't build that inside of a current city structure. You would need to build a new, build it from scratch as opposed to trying to, because you really want to build all that rail system. You want to design it for a million people and then put 30,000 into it and build the rail system out though with just dead ends to where you're going to go and pre-design the, pre-design the layout for it, but not try to build the layout. That's what Brasilia tried to do. And that was a disaster. Um, and so, uh, so, but, but think about how to start small. Um, I think that then you build that out with, you, the, the problem is, is it's getting, Jeff's completely right. Like just doing part of it won't get there, but you have to do the whole, it's a holistic problem because you also want to do things that service people who are working from home, you know, so every apartment has, has fiber you know, every part, you know, has, it has one room that is built for that. Um, there's a lot of things that would be, you need to build all of these things out, um, uh, all at one time to make that actually, um, successful. You couldn't do, if you do one part or another, it won't, it won't succeed. Um, it'll just be another failure, but you, but if you did all of it, again, what you're trying to do is push someone over when they're making a decision about where they want to live. You want to push them over the edge to where it's not that they like everything that you did, but they do it like enough of it that it's better than the other things that they have options for. The other thing you would do is not build it anywhere near the current cities. Um, you know, like you can't build it in an expensive place. Part of the thing is not to have it be uh, in an expensive area. I think um, Nevada is probably the best place to put it in, and specifically because there's not a lot of taxes in Nevada, as well as they have their own municipal ruling system so that you can actually build a city of your own as a corporation as opposed to a... Um, having to deal with the, having half the problem with most of these things was the local municipalities. <laughs> you know, so that's like half the issue. And so, um, and anyway, so I think that you would, uh, I think that you could, you could definitely do those kinds of things. And I think that, that if you connected it with like a high speed rail, like a, with a dirty uh, vacuum, it would be pretty, pretty nifty. Um, yeah, go ahead, Chris. So Alex, I'm curious, given your background, uh, uh, what do you think of the line? Have you looked at that much? I haven't seen the line. What's so the, the line? line is a city that they're building uh, somewhere. I want to say like Saudi Arabia. I could have that wrong. I apologize. Uh, and it is a one kilometer. Somebody knows more than me. It, it, it is a city that is a line in the desert. The outside edges uh, are uh, mirrored for some mm -hmm. reason. Don't know why. And then inside you have, uh, it, it's a it's a narrow 
width, so everything yeah. is very walkable, and then there is a rail, much like what you're talking about, uh, on the bottom, uh, and it's designed around the, the sort of concept of what they call the 15-minute city, like everything that you need should be a 15-minute walk from where you live. And uh, But it's long, it's, yeah. and it's... Uh, 170 and, and, and kilometers. As 170. A, as, right. That's as crazy long. as it sounds, last year, they broke ground on it, and they've been moving enormous <laughs> amounts of dirt to... That's pretty common in the Middle East, though. I mean, they got to put the money somewhere. So, so the, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan. I think that the line sounds interesting. And I, I, I could be wrong. I mean, I have to, take, to do more research on it. I really think the thing wants to be compact. I think that the line is is something. I think that you want it to be feel like it's like it's a small. I'd rather make it more circular and more contained. You know, like a citadel, because <laughs> I, I think that uh, part of the. I, I, yeah. Anyway, there, there's reasons to have it be more defensible. Um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Jeff. I, I was going to say, <laughs> okay, defensible. All right. Um, now, mm-hmm. with the line, I, I, I find it really, I, I find it extremely uh, engaging because of the just the, the sheer mass of it. And because they don't really ever say how much money they have in Saudi Arabia, you know, they, they will throw everything at it just to say, we built this. And it, that is just really amazing. 170 kilometers long. It, that's just invaluable. I was asked to design a studio that I, I said would be five to eight million, and I lost the bid because it wasn't at least 50 million. Like it was, you know, this was in, this was in, um, in the Middle East, and, and they just were like, no one's going to be impressed if they, if they do an $8 million studio project. And they, they, they want 50 million. I, I was like, I, that's not where I'd start. Like I was like, you need to like start in a place that you can keep building. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and if you want to avoid the town on the line, it's a long camel ride to go all the way around it. <laughs> yeah. All right, we are jumping subjects uh, for our second hour and going into AV over network. How do we get audio and video and uh, all of these things a- across the network um, and have them uh, you know, connected there? So we're going to leave it open for the panel to raise their hand if they want to talk about some of these subjects before we jump into the questions. But of course, we're here to answer your questions. So if you have questions around audio and video uh, over network, um, it's one of the things that we we know that this is important. We know that more and more this is happening, whether it's NDI or 2110 or all these other things that are going on, Dante and and many of the other protocols. Um, it is important that we keep on learning how to do that. So, um, so take a look at, you know, think about the things that, that you want, and hopefully some of our panelists will talk about some of the things that they think are important to think about um, in this area. Uh, Jeff, I'll let you go ahead and kick it off. I've got really simple answers, honestly. Uh, NDI for video and audio both, and then Dante for if you just need better, faster audio on the network. Use it with Netgear M4250s, and uh, that's it. Done. <laughs> and what are the things that, um, I guess, uh, the question for you, Jeff, is what are the things that you think get people in trouble? Like, where do they, where does, where does this become difficult? The first place is they overload their switches. They overload their switch network, their fabric. They don't understand that, even though it says, we were having a conversation earlier about this, it's like, even though it says, we'll start here, Jason, even though it has, eight ports that are gigabit ports on a switch that doesn't mean the backplane that holds all the traffic actually has that much bandwidth so you have to make sure read and then again you have to believe that the switch manufacturers didn't lie to you also 
and inflate the truth that's truly there. I'm, there's some silver switches that I used to use a lot, and I ran into problems with that because after a period of time, I was pushing a lot of 10 gig through it, and they would just fall apart. It's because they could not handle the throughput. So uh, that's where most people get in trouble, is they're overwhelming their NICs on their machines themselves, but mostly in the switching network itself, the fabric. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, there, are, I, I, I feel like I want to start with why people are so drawn to this. Um, in general, even if you have something like a digital mixer, for example, you end up with these very old school, very analog, very annoying problems. And this is a you know AV switcher or, or digital mixer doesn't matter. You end up with distance limitations where, you know, an analog cable can only go so long or, you know, the protocol is going to mess with something or you get noise or, you know, 60 hertz hum. Um, and you end up with I.O. issues where, you know, you just need one more output in order to get that over here. And if I could just turn that around, then I'd be perfect. And it, I think the appeal largely of, um, of AV over IP is that it solves this and it solves this for the low, low price of not buying specialty cables and being able to do just about everything with Ethernet. And um, it does so at the cost of a solid backbone because that's really what it's what it's built to um, to to work with. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Well, we were going to start talking also about subnetting and designing your network from the beginning. Uh, I've got a couple of, well, at least one slide here. That I'd like to share. Yeah, please and do. That is, uh, here we go. And when you're talking about IPv4, and we are, uh, you're talking about octets, and you get these great numbers. Okay, 198, 168, 100.1. But you have network addresses and you have host addresses, and how many hosts you have is actually how many devices you have on your network. When you first set up your router, you go in there and it normally sets it up as what we refer to as a slash 24 network on subnetting. And that means that right here, let me, right there is to the right of that line, you have host addresses. To the left of that line, you have network addresses. And that allows you 254 devices on your network. But if that doesn't work out for you, you're going to grow from that. You can actually move that line. And you can move that line to here and get 510 or here and get uh, 1,022 host addresses. When you start building your network, you want to plan this ahead of time because you don't want to change this afterwards because then you're going to go in and have to change all your devices and what their subnets are throughout your entire network. Start out with the 1022 subnet and you will be able to manage your uh, IP address allocations and thus have groups of inter uh, IoT devices, NAS devices, servers, and that way you can make it more intuitive when you're scanning your network and working with it later on. Go ahead, Chris. 
I mean, I'll be honest. A lot of this stuff just seems like uh, sci-fi to me. Uh, I was wondering, Jeff Keithley, uh, given your history, what would you say is a good way to to sort of break into this and learn this stuff at the ground level? Somebody like myself who's used to just running cables from here to there. Are you talking about more on the system design or just in general? Yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of this just seems crazy. I know you've done a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I honestly, if you're just getting started, it, it's amazing what the Dante uh, certification courses bring to the table. Uh, they start at the basic side. If you have any basic knowledge of what an IP is, you can go into those certification courses and you can really learn a lot. Uh, three is a little bit on the, the far side, but one and two are just invaluable. I, every Everybody that works for me has to do that because it just gives you a base. And then once you have that, you can kind of see where to, where to go. And besides that, it's it's finding people like this group here that that it really are in the thick of things. And and we know we've we've been through the pain. Uh, I've been through the uh I've been through the silver switch pain. I've been through stuff before that where I was having to use CLI to a uh, command line interface to be able to go in and get nitty-gritty inside of a switch and it, it was no fun. I I thoroughly enjoy throwing down switches, make them work and never having to worry about it again. That's the way it should be. You shouldn't have to sit there and monkey around all the time. So some people find it fun. And as Tom pointed out, I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to do things. Um, if you've got 250 plus devices on your network, uh, I would be doing it a different way. I, a completely different way myself. VLANs and separating things apart. But that's just my workflows and what works. And a lot of it, Chris, is as you do it more and more, you just learn better ways of doing it too. Go ahead, Seth. One of the elements that I also look towards as well is physical planning and capacity planning as well. So if you're in the confines of one truck or one rack, you can see the switch and it might be one or two switches. All of your devices are connected to it. Uh, the moment that you are looking at networks to pass NDI and Dante across different uh, locations in a building or even different buildings um, or, or a campus or a city or a town, you also start looking at what are the bandwidth requirements on those particular links. So a one gigabit port only switch will yield certain results, 10 gigabit, uh, 20, 40, and up from there. Uh, it's amazingly quick uh, to saturate a, a, a certain network link with a certain amount of NDI traffic, uh, let alone HD as you're heading up to 4K. So so planning um, planning out that those bandwidth requirements and how all those switches are interconnected becomes uh, critically important. And then on top of that is redundancy too. Uh, do you look at a star topology of a network or a ring topology where you may have a single point of failure uh, when all of your switches connect to one switch or router? So then you look at chaining different switches together, uh, using different protocols for redundancy so that if one switch goes down, uh, your production keeps going. So so that physical aspect of it too um, can, be, can be quite intriguing to look into. Yeah. Listening to the automate discussion, one of the things I was thinking about is whether we should think about um, having us all, or the folks, those of us who haven't taken those automate, automate um, those um, classes, taking them all together, <laughs> having a whole bunch of us all uh, just just uh, swarm and automate uh, training, get it, you know, look out far enough that probably not a lot of people booked into it yet, and just book into it because I think that there's a real power to all of us learning it at the same time, you know, like everybody, and then there's a lot of chit chat. We could even have a couple. 
uh, after hours sessions to talk through it with some of the folks that are much more expertise so we can answer questions, we can ask, ask them questions and end up with a lot of people that really understand it. And I'm going to put out a poll here real quick and let me know if, if people are interested in something like that and then we'll make some plans. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. You could absolutely do that in a watch party concept also. I yeah. mean, the, the, I, I don't send my guys to the certification. I tell them to get online. Go go through it because they can learn it so much faster. Well, I think that they have they have a uh, I think they have an online version though that I think is live as well that they've been doing since. Yeah, they have live and they have VOD. Yeah, and I think that yeah, so we could do it. Yeah, do it together. It'd be interesting. But maybe we can work with Audinate on that as well. If we if we've got enough people that are interested, I think that that you know if we say hey, we've got thirty people that want to take it from you online over Zoom, we might be able to get their attention. Uh, go ahead, Tom. Uh, definitely, this could be a lab and. It's something where you you watch a module and then you can sit down and discuss it before anyone takes the the test for these modules. Uh, I just went through a certification for level three last month, and uh, one and two would be great just for starters in network design and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll, we'll take a look at that. A lot of uh, people are pretty <laughs> uh, pretty positive about that. We had um, uh, a solid twenty two people say that they're interested. So um, I think it sounds like it's uh, it's uh, worth uh, us taking a look at. So so stay tuned for more around that. Uh, let's go to the next question. You call it Dante's Inferno. <laughs> From uh, Samuel Nordvik in Norway says, "Have you had success doing Dante out of a USB C iPad with an AVIO adapter?" Go ahead, Jason. Not only have I had success with that, I've also had success um, simply with a lightning to USB on the simple USB A to B Dante adapters. Um, it, it, this is truly class compliant, assuming you can power it over um, PoE. Go ahead, Ronnie. Yeah, and in addition to what uh, Jason just said, uh, you can also use the Bluetooth uh, version of AVO. It's also working very, very nice. Next question. Comes in from uh, Dan Goldstein in White Plains, New York. He says, what NICs are you finding reliable for AV over IP? Finding lots of unreliable hardware that either has slow rates or intermittent dropouts. Go ahead, Jeff. Just for clarification, NIC, Nick, as we commonly call it, network interface connection. So uh, for us, I, I I play a little bit on the reserve side myself, so I usually will go with Intel chipsets uh, as a as a first step. Um, some of those Intels are not 100% uh, available in some form factors. So, like our Dell 3930s, for instance, have the uh, Aquasha or Aquasha, uh, 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 something that nobody can pronounce because they pretend. Uh, and then that's the 10 gig. And so it has its own set of driver sets, uh, also, which was, uh, was it Marvell or Marvel purchased them. So now you have another set of drivers and then the others that, that I have found a uh, really good, uh, use for, um, I, I, honestly, it, it really, I, I go back to Intel every time because they just work and and you don't have to play around with versioning and things like that. And I rarely have to update firmware on drivers, uh, except for the equation. Those, those, those I actually have played with a bit. Go ahead, John. I agree. The Intel chipsets have been most stable for me. Uh, if you're running on a Windows machine, there's also things that go into like 
disabling flow control uh, and other advanced features within the NIC that you're going to want to look at. There's lots of recommendations and, and uh, walkthroughs online. And you just want to make sure that you're not offloading too much. They're not pushing things away from the NIC and just let the NIC do its thing versus having the CPU get in the way of that and then potentially cause other issues because you're trying to do too much with the CPU at the same time. Good running. Uh, what we found is uh, there are some chips of older uh, dates that are really, really, especially in dongles, uh, using uh, using them on Macs, uh, is really unreliable after a while. I think it has to do with uh, heat building up. Uh, and Intel uh, does not have those uh, issues. Uh, but what we found in a kind of easy uh, check was um, uh, dongles doing uh, 2.5 or 5 uh, gigabit per seconds were, was more stable, probably because of newer or better chips. Yeah, and, the, um, uh, and if you're seeing intermittent dropouts, I mean, it may be coming from the device itself, uh, but also know the, the one... Do not cross the lines, no matter whether you what kind of switch you get. Just make sure you turn off all the eco settings. If any sw switch has eco settings, they got to be turned off, or all all heck breaks loose. <laughs> Next question. Next one comes in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. He says, "Which codecs are best for live wide area network delivery, and which for live local area network delivery?" Thanks. Good, Jeff. In our experience, hands down, uh, NDI for LAN and for WAN, SRT is probably the go-to right now for most of our work. Uh, next question. From uh, Joe Kidd in the Bay Area of California. He says, uh, can you explain more about a switch's backplane? Yeah, go ahead, uh, John. Yeah, so what a switch's backplane, think about the total amount of information that it can move at the same time. Um, so if you have a 48 port switch and there's 48 one gig ports on that switch um, and you have less than um, you know 4.8 terabyte of data that you can move at the same time, you are now potentially in a situation where you could oversubscribe um, based upon how much information you're sending at the same time. Um, it's typically not an issue at 48 uh, 48 ports, but in smaller switches, 8, 16 ports, you can get to a position where the switch can't process in time. And what it's going to start doing is dropping frames uh, or having retransmits happen on the network that are going to cause you issues with any sort of real-time communication. And just a quick reminder that you can keep on asking questions and voting on those questions. Um, we uh, are cutting through these really quickly. And if you, this is an incredible um, panel uh, here to answer your network questions. So if you've got questions about network in general or AV over the network, uh, go ahead and throw those questions into Makana. And again, make sure to vote on the questions so we know what order you'd like us to ask them in. Uh, next question. Coming in from uh, Dan Goldstein in the White Plains of New York, he says, does anyone have a dedicated AV over IP rack, and what hardware is it equipped with? Any key pieces you'd recommend for such a build? Go ahead, Jeff. Considering all our racks are dedicated, I'm sorry, is dedicated, I guess that means in a studio or your home studio or something like that, but um, it's what we build our business off of it's how we work so all our audio and all our video is at some point audio over ip um we don't deal with a lot of baseband sdi and such in our workflows so yes we do and where we start with is uh from the top down and and, and just some clarification too because i see a question coming up that seems to be a little confused top down the router 
So that's where the internet comes in and it goes into the router. And then out of the router, we go into our switches and there's multiple switches for in our, our setup, we might have as many as 30 switches in a given site. Um, and then the switches are doing the real processing of the data back and forth between devices. The router is just bringing internet in. And in our topology, we're actually not hitting the router very often. Uh, so it's not actually the bottleneck. There's some other topologies that do things a little bit different. And if your router goes down, I, your USG goes down, you can definitely bring your network to a halt. So uh, it really kind of depends on, on your budget too. Uh, it will definitely depend on your budget. Uh, the M4250s from Netgear are designed for AV. They're designed for what we're doing. And it makes it simpler for even people that are not techie to get in, make the adjustments that need to be made and uh, be profitable from that point because they're not having to monkey around and learn IT as deep as some of the other products on the market. Next question. From uh, Alexander Knight here on the panel and from Vancouver, British Columbia, he says, is a ubiquity edge router acceptable for use with Dante in a home environment? Are there any tutorials on how to properly configure them or is it just a matter of VLANs? Go ahead, uh, Jeff. I'll circle back to that. Are you talking about a router? Or are you talking about a switch? Because those are two different things and Edge does both. But uh, it's really about the router is going to be bringing your internet in and sending it places and connecting you to everything else. Whereas the switch is maintaining connections between devices. Uh, and that's where the majority of your traffic is. So if you need to separate and segregate your traffic apart for specific reasons, like Dante, if you're not using a whole bunch of NDI, Dante can live on a normal network because it's small. It's just audio. It's really small packets and everything. Uh, you probably will be fine with a what we call a flat switch. So it doesn't have any VLANs. Don't make your life more complicated just because you can. Make it more complicated to simplify your life. How's that? Good, Ronnie. Yeah, I totally agree with Jeff. Uh, we have experience using uh, Unify Ubiquity and uh, also Edge routers and Edge uh, uh, series of switches. They have a little bit issues if we have a lot of traffic uh, going on, but uh, in a home environment, I think you would be good. So, Jason? Yeah, I mean, the Edge router is an interesting case, but if you're doing it right and your Edge router is in fact an an actual router instead of just, you know, a fancy switch that is um, doing NAT traversal and DHCP, um, then it shouldn't really be touching the router at all. all right, go ahead, Tom. Uh, what Jason just said, definitely, it shouldn't be touching the router. I'm going to be putting in an M4250 switch for the Dante portion of my network, but I'm very reliant on my ubiquity equipment. Yeah, and one thing that I will say is, as you start to buy this, a lot of us are paying a lot of attention to 2110, you know, so NDI is, is very popular right now, but, um, you know, with Blackmagic kind of leaning into the 2110, a lot of us are looking at what that's gonna look like, um, and you really have to pay attention to what it takes to move uncompressed uh, video around. So, so that's, you know, while it's not going to be as expensive to buy it from Blackmagic, it is going to be, it's going to cost some money to, to move those things through. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, you're, you're definitely just going to take where you save money here on this column and you're going to move it here. 2110 yeah. is not cheap. 
to maintain the infrastructure for whatsoever. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to go, well, it's, it was Dante. I mean, Dante and Indy, I were working perfectly fine on my $300 switch. Why won't 2110 work? Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think that that's going to be, you know, that, and again, it depends on the kind of content you're doing when you're, when we're talking about some of the stuff that, that I work on with green screen, HDR, other things like that, compressing the footage is not something we want to do. And so, um, so we're really looking at it. So it depends on what you need, but NDI can definitely solve most problems, probably 98% of those problems, uh, with good network, uh, uh, management there. Yeah. Next question. Coming in from Dan Goldstein in White Plains, New York. He says, any fun setups for music plus far play with audio over internet protocol? You know, I think that that one's a slightly different challenge, um, which we probably could de dedicate a whole second hour to uh, related to um, being able to do integration over, over distance. So one of the things that as you get into those setups, um, you're really talking about now traversing the WAN, and that really becomes very difficult. Farplay has done pretty well. What it does is it gives up quality between the artists so that they can talk, and it's still limited by a certain amount of time. Um, this is something I deal with a lot, and we're dealing with, I mean, we are removing, for me, to get interactivity working, we're literally taking pieces of hardware out of our pipelines and trying to make it more efficient because I need 15 milliseconds here and I need 20 milliseconds there. And I'm like, I can save this here and move this over here so that we can create a more interactive experience in a, over a very long distance. And even then we couldn't really have people play together outside of the, the, the outer, for most instruments, the outer distance or most music, the outer distance is about 300 miles right now that we know of. Um, there are where it becomes the, the latency of the light over the fiber becomes a challenge. And, and at that point, you have to pay attention to everything that you're passing back and forth. For instance, if you're only audio, you can get to a much lower latency. Video, you know, you start getting into things like, you know, JPEG 2000 um, takes about two frames to compress. And so that becomes a 60 milliseconds that we lose on, on both ends if we're doing some kind of round trip. But JPEG XS is six to eight milliseconds. Um, so we're looking at, you know, what does that take so that we can now buy, buy that, that, that latency back. Um, but when you get into interaction, either interaction with an audience or interaction between two two artists, um, the this is a whole other world um, beyond outside of the kind of the LAN based. I think most of what we're talking about today is LAN. But when you get into WAN um, and, and what you can do over the public internet is very different than what you do over private fiber. So when I'm doing these tests, I'm using the switch, which is a private fiber network. Um, that allows me to put Nimbras on either side. And now I have a very, very low latency, almost as low as you can get, you know, with the distance. But then even then we're looking at, is it hopping through one location or another? And that starts to make a difference if it's going through that hardware. So the, all of those things become a really big deal when you're talking about what you're bringing up here is really important. And I think there is a future for it. But we look at literally, if, I, if I'm trying to go between two locations, I'm looking at how many miles are they from each other in fiber? <laughs> and and I have to you know pay attention to that. Is that going to be an eight millisecond round trip or or one way or twenty or forty two or three hundred and forty three? You know those kinds of things are things we worry about. Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael and he says merging technologies has the Anubis audio interface which uses the AES sixty seven Ravena along with an integrated mix engine with SonarWorks Sound ID technology for monitor correction. How well do Dante devices integrate with the AES-67 Ravina? Go ahead, Jeff. Well, AES-67 de 
it's a standard. So those that want to sell it, so say for instance, sound technologies or uh, which is we use a lot of their gear. And most of all their newer chipset, yeah, pretty much all their newer chipsets now to come to think of it, or AES67 compliant. So they will send out AES67 streams and receive them, both depending if they're a two-way device or not. Uh, it just depends on the device and whether or not they want to support it. Uh, the, I, from what I understand, the code is there in the chip. So the chip can do it if they were using more current chips, Ultimos, and, and especially the Brooklyn 2s. Well, what used to be the 2s now is the new Special 3 or whatever they're going to call it. Uh, but whenever it comes down to whether it, you use AES67 or not, you also have to look at your, again, your switching network because not all switches will be able to carry and the, I go back to the M4250s again because they have a setting click i have a, a 67 capabilities so it depends a lot more on your backbone too yeah and and i have limited understand i have limited use of ravenna um but but i would say that the in general you're still going to have to get from ravenna to dante it's not like you can just connect one to the other so when it talks about that you're still going to have to figure out a device or a group of devices that are going to input ravenna and output it and you know from what i understand about ravenna it's it's really a large-scale solution not a small-scale solution so if you're dealing and when i say small scale i mean most of the events that we work on like if you're working on the olympics or the super bowl ravenna starts to become something that'll, that because it's highly programmable and highly um malleable uh, it, it, it's something that you can design very large systems with um, I have never seen Ravenna used in a smaller system where it was successful. Like, like you know, like it was just like, yeah, you just kind of like, like, um, and um, uh, so uh, like it, it, when it goes into a smaller system, I find that if you don't have someone dedicated that really understands it and really understands the network and really understands Ravenna itself, uh, you have to have someone who is like, true experts in that area. Dante is a much more plug and play solution. You still need to have some expertise and you understand it and people like what we have on the panel, but you don't have to don't have to have this be as a specialty. When you go into a large one, you end up hiring people like that. Uh, when you go into a smaller one, Dante, we what we see 99% of the time is just Dante. Uh, next next question. From Eduardo Augustine in Panama, Pennsylvania, he says, "What is more reliable and efficient?" AV over IP network or AV through SDI connectors or NDI. I'll go ahead, uh, John. I think it really, the medium doesn't matter as much as, as make sure you're doing and setting up things the right way and you're building to scale and you understand what your technology you're using. SDI may be easier from a, I can grab this type of cable with this rating and I can buy all these devices and it's going to work where anything over network is just going to require some additional configuration, but I don't think one is, is better than the other necessarily. Go Jeff. Just, just to make sure the very end of that uh, question kind of confused me. So SDI connectors or NDI AV is uh, NDI is AV over IP. So um, it's either NDI AV over IP or SDI, which is, over wire, I guess you'd say point-to-point -point wire or through routers or whatever. For us, it's all about the uh, the ability to be flexible. So I have a lot of NDI floating around on my network here at the office and our NMCR. Uh, I have no use for SDI because I can do so much more with NDI in with the proper switching involvement. Uh, we can we can actually do a lot of creative things a lot more efficiently 
and don't even get me started about the cloud. I, I can't use SDI in the cloud at all, but I can use hundreds of sources of NDI. So it just depends on your application. For us, it's just as reliable. Yeah, I, I think that I think that a lot of times, if you don't have the networking um, infrastructure uh, that, that's there, oftentimes a lot of broadcasters want to use SDI for an SDI or MADI. So MADI is kind of the the it can pat, what MADI can do is pass through all their video routers, especially if you're in a truck or something like that. So we see MADI uh, a fair bit in broadcast, um, but you know we you know obviously a lot of times what we're figuring out is where are we going to convert the MADI to Dante <laughs> to make that work when it comes to audio. And then um, again, video has been, you know, it's been, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. NDI obviously at, at a certain tier has been really, really popular, obviously still in the trucks. The, a lot of the bigger trucks are moving. Um, what we're seeing large trucks do moving to 2110 trucks, um, you know, so that's what we're, um, and, and, you know, some of the larger infrastructure is on a 2110 network. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next decade with all of these formats and standards. And the problem with, uh, with standards is that there's so many. Uh, next question comes in from Steve Yeroff in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. He says, Shoot Pro from squares.tv will allow you to use an iPhone as an NDI source over Wi-Fi. Uh, what's your comfort level with running NDI over wireless? Enjoy, John. Any real-time communication over Wi-Fi is going to have issues. I've seen, I know that we've tested this uh, several times in after hours, and you can just see it dropping quality changing over time. Um, do not rely on Wi-Fi for anything that needs to be real-time. If you can add a buffer, chances are it will work okay. Uh, but any, again, anything real-time over Wi-Fi, stay away. Go ahead, Jeff. I'm a strong provider of cables. I love, I love throwing cables down. I love running cables, and I love having people run cables for me. Those that take the wireless way, you're just asking for problems. That's all the way I look at it. Yeah, I mean, anything mission critical, we try to, we only use wireless as a last resort. Um, I literally have, I had a wireless inter internet connection here for a long time. And the problem I had is I have uh, turkey vultures stand on the top of my, on the top of my house. And when they open their wings in the sun, they were blocking my connection to my, my internet. So, so anyway, so that's, <laughs> that's how bad it can be. Um, with Wi-Fi, the big problem is, is that Wi-Fi was never designed for real-time audio and video. It was designed to be convenient. It was designed to let you connect wirelessly anywhere. And because of that, the the access points are very, you know, they're very ADHD. They're like, hey, how's it going? They're just talking to everybody, every every device that walks by. So if you have a, a Wi-Fi connection and you're in the middle of nowhere and you see no other Wi-Fi networks and no one's moving and you're by yourself at your house, it's 99% as stable as, as wired. And that's the only time, like nothing within miles, no other devices moving, you by yourself, with and say in the your access point is able to calm and just listen to you you're probably okay and that almost never happens so so what happens is is that everything when you when you open up in your apartment or or in a building and you see 130 access points and then you have thousands of people walking around every time they walk in and out of the range of an access point the access point is dropping packets because it's talking to them instead of talking to you and it's just like you know and it, and it's not it's not a very good multitasker and so it's constantly dropping packets do you notice them all the time not always but you do notice them so it doesn't matter how good your internet connection is the wi-fi will be dropping packets of people are moving in and out of it um, and if it's talking to other ap's and so that's the you just can't get away from that and that's so everything what everyone was talking about is yeah it's problematic next question 
Kind of a related question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, how useful are iPhones in AV over network using NDI? And what accessories do you use? The one thing I will say is that um, in the stuff that we've done with for cooking, the one place that I have used wireless is just doing airplay from my phone to my to an Apple TV. Now, I admit the phone is four feet from the Apple TV. <laughs> you know, it's just talking to it. Um, and the Apple TV has plugged HDMI into my switcher. And that has been a, a fairly successful way to to use that that product. But that's the only time I've been particularly happy with it. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, I've played around with it with my iPhone a few times, uh, but I'm anxiously waiting on the USB-C version uh, that may or may not be coming, but I have definitely used my USB-C iPad Pro to bring in, but it's still cabled. I'm not using it for the actual Wi-Fi connection. I'm using it to bring in NDI over it. That's fine, but it's coming over the cable. I'm not depending on it as wireless. Yeah, next question. This one from uh, Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. He says, "What at what point do you consider setting up an NDI multicast? What are the advantages and disadvantages of NDI multicast? Go ahead, Seth. I can speak to this on a somewhat uh, smaller scale, but uh, the the mathematical equation that I have in my head is when you have more receivers than what the source itself can handle. So, for example, uh, if you're dealing with an HD PTZ camera, full bandwidth NDI is around 150 megabits or so. So you do really quick math on that, and if you're having, what, six, six or seven or more devices receiving full bandwidth uh, from that PTZ camera, you're going to saturate the network link on that camera and start having dropout. Uh, so a solution to that is multicast, where you transition from unicast uh, into multicast, where it's a little bit more bandwidth efficient. Now, with that comes a, a totally different set of headaches that you have to manage as well, uh, especially on the network switch end. Um, so it does require more advanced hardware, but uh, when you're trying to manage bandwidth and uh, multiple destinations for sources, uh, it is worth looking into. Go, Jason. Um, when would you consider it? When it is more efficient to do it that way than to do it um, in, in its traditional sense? Uh, what are the advantages? The advantages are um, significant bandwidth savings. What are the disadvantages? It is significantly harder to set up and maintain. Yeah, networks don't, network administrators are not super excited about multicast for a whole host of reasons we can probably spend a whole second hour on. And so you really have to talk to the network. A lot of times the multicast protocols are shut down on many, many networks. If if, if those networks are managed by somebody, they're turning them off. <laughs> now, when they turn them on and they tune them, they're very powerful. So multicast, we've now, I'm not talking about NDI multicast in general, but in multicast, um, we see these used at very large sporting events at um, to, to supply, for instance, all the all the images for all the monitors. You know, so everywhere, everything from the bathroom down the hallway to the, you know, all of those are all multicast. But that is a specific network. It is completely set up for that thing. Um, your hotels are multicast. You know, when you open up your, when you go to a channel, you're going to a multicast channel. Um, and so these are multicast systems that that are, but but it has to be tuned. It has to be managed, and you're not going to be able to just throw it up onto onto something to make it actually work. But when it's when when you have that working, you know we've had a source supplying 300 TVs or monitors or projector or LED walls across a, a you know a 30 acre area, and all we're doing is putting little boxes on the back of those monitors and plugging them into the Ethernet and having it go out, and it's all multicasted out to them, and it's been very successful. Go ahead, John. 
Yeah, it's actually what I do for my campus. Uh, so I have about 500 TVs and we all run a multicast network. We're pushing 32 channels of content across that. And it's across three different buildings, across many different layer three um, devices. Uh, and it's all handled, you know, whoever needs it, it's going to pull down only what it needs. It's not pulling down all 32 channels across every switch stack. Uh, so it's a very efficient way for us to move video across our campus. That's great. Yeah, next question. This one comes in from uh, Lenny Nelson in San Antonio, Texas. How much effort should we use to make everything a static IP address? Hi, right, Tom. Well, it depends. You start out with your subnet. That gives you X number of addresses, say 510. Then you define your DHCP. Your DHCP is the pool of addresses that you have decided that the router is going to hand out as devices request IP addresses. The static IPs are everything else. That's what you manually assign. I like to keep some of those out of the pool because then I can have groupings for servers, routers, infrastructure, other devices. Keeps me organized. Everything else goes into that DHCP pool. Good, John. Yeah, for myself, I like to do anything that's going to be a, a production level equipment is going to get a static IP. I do not want a device that's going to do a DHCP refresh in the middle of my show. And then that causes some sort of hiccup that's going to have an issue. I don't want those services running on those devices. And I want to keep it as clean as I can. Go ahead, Seth. And this is where the corporate IT and the media IT sides of my brain start to fight each other. And they really don't like each other um, because of this particular thing. In a corporate environment, DHCP reservations are pretty common because it helps to, to keep and maintain order. Um, spreadsheets are very helpful in that regard. Uh, but in a production context, if you're if you're dependent on a router to assign your DHCP address, or you know, hopefully maybe you have a DHCP server in your switch, uh, if you lose that DHCP server, your devices will may well lose connectivity in the network and your show is over. Uh, so for that reason, production critical, I like to use spreadsheets and I will statically program it into the device and just call it a day. Go, Jeff. Seth and I could, we could have lots and lots of drinks together because we are right, right there. Yeah, absolutely. Here's, here's the basics of us doing a lot of production and using a lot of things that are IP based. I know that if I have a specific device, because it has a sticker on it, I've labeled it with a specific static IP. This is my workflow. This is my method. It may not be for everybody. I know some people like router reservations or DHCP table reservations. Great, fine. If it works for you and you have access to it. But here's my thing is I've got freelancers. I've got people that are not, I'm not going to give access to my router. I don't want them looking at a DHCP table. I want them to be able to go, this is the address, go to a computer that's attached to that VLAN, type in this address with a ping right before it, ping space, that address. Do you see it saying something back? Okay, then it's on the network. If it's not coming back to you, then it's not on the network. If you're using DHCP, you can't always do that. And though it doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, for me, that's the workflow that works for us. If I can't see it, then there's the problem to start with. It's a physical problem at that point. Once I can ping it, then it's a software problem from that end. Go ahead, uh, Jason. If you need to know where it is at all times, nail it down, label it. I use different color labels for different VLANs or different octets sometimes. Um, and if you don't, let it, you know, let it be assigned by DHCP. 
Good, Don. I'm glad Seth brought up corporate versus AV because when you get into corporate, you get into multi-story buildings, multiple subnets, and actually you can get very clever with your IP addressing if you want to. And that also helps your IT staff when they're trying to troubleshoot a problem. Uh, I did a a 20-story building, set it up, and our IT people could know by the IP address that's having a problem what floor and what closet to respond to, and they could start walking. They didn't even have to look it up. Yeah, one of the things we did, we um, in Pixel Core, we had about um, somewhere between eight, typically eight to 10 different systems that were out somewhere, going somewhere all the time. And uh, we reserved, we did the reservation. So basically, based on the MAC address, we would deliver an, a DHCP, uh, uh, we would deliver an IP. Uh, and the advantage of that is we could move hard hardware around. They were all reserved properly. And it, the only thing that was different was the router number. You know, so you just knew, oh, what system are you in? I'm in system five. And you just knew what the IP was for everything that went in there. Um, and I didn't have to, we didn't have to do anything or move anything around or change any IPs on the hardware. The hardware would just get inserted in and immediately just be where it needed to be. And so we found that to be, you know, super effective. And we used it every day, <laughs> all day, uh, because we were trying to minimize the amount of uh, skill set that was necessary in that er- in some of those areas on the on the edge. So we had a handful of core people that could wanted to be able to get into that system and do whatever it needs to do to fix things without having to have people on the edge that could do that. Um, next question. From Monsi Robles in uh, Mexico City says, what are the advantages or disadvantages of using VLANs versus a different network? Go ahead, Jeff. For us, it's about the counts of fiber that we can use. So we can use one or two fibers to to bridge different switches together. Uh, That is a pretty valuable thing when you're working in the field. So I may only have a TAC4 or a four fiber cable going between uh, locations, uh, between our different sites that we have coming back to our master control truck. Uh, So I don't want to give up a whole bunch of different fibers if I had two different two different switches with completely separate networks, then I would have to give up more fibers on that. So for us, it's fiber, um, and, and that could be copper for that matter too, depending on how many cables you want to run. Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, John. Yeah, so I'd take this a little bit differently is, is the difference really is um, you are creating a virtual network and you're what you're doing is reducing the amount of collision domains that can happen within the switch. So whether you're using a physically separate switch or creating a VLAN, that is the purpose of that, is to remove that um, potential collisions that could be happening, the extra chatter that happens within the network. Um, And so just focus on what are you trying to separate, why are you trying to separate it, uh, and then what are you trying to solve? I think those are the questions you should be answering. Uh, And again, being able to, you know, use one piece of glass to carry 20 different networks, that's great as well. Yeah, I will say that um, when we talk about individual fiber, uh, one thing that has dropped dramatically is the cost of 12-strand <laughs> fiber. Um, and I've, I've, you know, stopped, definitely stopped buying anything less than 12. You know, 12 is kind of my minimum. It's 30 cents a foot or something like that at this point. And so it's it's really, you know, I wouldn't get less than that at this point. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I agree completely. Fiber has become, as itself, fiber as itself has become increasingly cheaper. But what I have found is termination has gone up uh, due to shortage of people, I think, is part of it. Uh, and so, like, my providers, three or four different providers I, I use mostly, 
I they're behind weeks and weeks and weeks. So, and then the connectors themselves. So we use for our uh, Neutric optical cons is, is our favorite go-to uh, for all our smaller stuff. So t- up to tack four at that point. And then we use STs for the twelves. STs are still fairly affordable, but the optical cons have gone through the roof. Limos have gone through the roof. It's just, it's, it's crazy what our shortages have uh, created for us. Yeah, I I will say that we we don't use it as much as we we did when when we had with Pixelcore we had our own termination kit and and folks that could do it internally uh, because we kept on breaking them you know like you know like you break a, a, a one and you needed to fix it in the field so we ended up having those um, and putting and we pretty much used all ST just because we had to standardize on something and um, the ST fiber seemed to be the the most it just feels the most secure I don't know if it is or not but it always felt you know it's like a little like a little BNC except that it's fiber um, next question. Next one from uh, Samuel Norvik in Norway says, on a high level, how do you send NDI between two instances in the cloud? Any advantage with this over using SRT? Go ahead, Ronnie. Well, I'm pretty sure uh, Jeff will be covering the NDI part. Uh, I will be talking a little bit more of uh, Dante Connect, which is a new uh, kind of software released from uh, Ordinate uh, during NAB. Uh, You should really just... uh, Hook me up on Discord and we'll have a talk about that, maybe even in Norwegian. Okay, go ahead, Jeff. The biggest advantage of NDI versus SRT are in between cloud instances, for instance. Now, this is cloud instances that are in the same VPC or the same cluster of computers together, depending on if you're using Amazon or Google or Azure or whatever. Uh, the difference is NDI can be frames or less than frames, technically. But the difference is with SRT, you're talking about more latency between the devices. To make it easier to do, you need to open up your security group in AWS called security groups. So your firewall ports so that they can talk between the two instances. So 5950, uh, 5959 and up to however many streams you need of NDI you would open those up. Once they're open, then you'll have NDI flowing back and forth between devices very easily. It shouldn't be hard at all. If you need help, reach out to me or or if Ronnie wants to be an interpreter, he could help me too. Next question. From Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. Uh, sending NDI over a VPN, I get a 10-second audio drop every couple of minutes. Any best practice suggestions for sending NDI over a VPN? Go ahead, Jeff. It's simple. Don't use a VPN because you shouldn't be to do NDI. Uh, honestly, that's the best solution. Uh, it, there is no magic key to fix it. Uh, it just shouldn't be done because you're going to have a lot more problems with it. Uh, there are other ways to send NDI, um, it, but VPN's not really a strong way. Next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. He says, if Blackmagic Design uses native 2110 with the ATEM range of switchers, do you think that will drive wider adoption of 2110 at the lower or middle end? Go ahead, Tom. Absolutely not. 2110 is not going to be at the lower or middle end. And that's because of the amount of traffic it actually puts and generates on your IT infrastructure. You're going to have to go up to much faster switches and much beefier infrastructure to adopt 2110. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see uh, what 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 they do there. I think that I think it was interesting that some of the new switchers have a lot of um, a lot of Ethernet 
in the back of them, way more than just one connector. There's like four connectors on the back. Uh, I think that you're going to find that those four connectors are designed to take, I think we're going to find that those, those are designed to take some uh, direct connections from the cameras. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I strongly disagree. I have, I have an Arista switch over here with 40 gigabit ports on it. 40, not 10. But the whole, the, the rest of the 48 ports are all 10, but the, the SFP plus or whatever they call them, right. QSB, QS, SFPs, those are designed to be able to handle that kind of traffic. The stuff that's sitting on the back of an ATEM, there's no way that we're going to a large amount of it, of SMPTE 2110 through it. It's just, it, there are, they don't have the hardware cost in it. I think that they, with four of those backends at HD, they can do 12 cameras. Like, I think that that's the, that's the, that's the math, but we'll see. Not we'll see. uncompressed, uncompressed. Uncompressed, yeah, three, uh -oh. three, three G. If they're 10 G, if they're 10 G connections, they're three, there's three, three, there's, they would have three, three Gs per ethernet, but we'll see. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see what Apple, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what Blackmagic does there. Um, it's a, uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, puzzle, but it, I think that that's why there's more than one Ethernet in the back is to connect cameras to it. Um, next question. From uh, John Knudsen in uh, Auburn Hills. He says, what are your thoughts on the Netgear 4250 multicast configuration in the NDI 5 profile? What changes would you make or suggest to the out-of-the-box configuration? Go ahead, Jeff. Use the AV, easy AV interface and go with it like it is it works fine for the ndi5 profile works great. next question from um, george whittam in uh, venice he says why is it so difficult to get an it department to open a single port on a mac for source connect what are the alternatives when they just won't let it happen good seth well, step one is to find out what food or beverage your IT person likes and bring it to them. That that might help out. Um, in seriousness, building that long-term relationship of trust can go a long way. But but from the technical aspect, uh, trying to seek out services that have some level of a crowd um, cloud-based uh, traversal, you know, is is one thing. But uh, but but something successful. Um, uh, that I've had is to try to limit the port openings to specific public IPs. So if you can go to that IT department and say, we need these ports forwarded in, but they are only coming from these specific IP addresses and sources, sometimes that can soften uh, the situation a little bit to, uh, to to get what you need to get things done. Go, Jason. Yeah, there's a people aspect to this and then a technical aspect to this. Um, it's possible in larger scale enterprise networks, for example, that they've used Apple's configurator and they have pushed a static set of settings onto a computer that um, it would be really, really hard to change. Um, could also just be that they're they're being ornery. It's just, you know, depends. Yeah, and, I would, and I would say ornery is that that generally them making this available to you is not going to get them a raise or not, and not going to give them anything extra, but if failing will be a big deal, like if something gets in. So they have a lot of vested interest in protecting their network and you have to have enough juice to get through that. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're, they're there, their job, in addition to connecting all the computers is to protect the network. And they're going to take that, they're going to throw everything else under the bus to protect their network and they're under constant attack. I think we think that, oh, I don't understand why they can't. You know, most of these, you know, external hits are getting hit by thousands of, of bots all the time. And so every time they open it, they view it as a, as a um, you know, as a liability. You know, every port they open is something bad that could come through. 
and they are under constant attack. And so I, you know, we understand it. And so what we have to figure out is how do we give them what they need without putting a lot of risk. So to get back to what, what was discussed earlier, I just need these ports opened only from this location, you know, and being and understanding that that's a big, a big deal for them. Once they have the configuration, usually it's really easy because now it's just a setup, you know, they can just run it and, it, and they'll want to open it for certain times and not, not all the time. They'll, there's a lot of things that they want to do there. But working with them on that uh, has been really successful and the beverages do help. Um, you know, like, so I will say that uh, we we spend a lot of time paying a lot of attention to our network administrators, whether it's at a facility or other things of, of you know, dinners and lunches and things because they are our life. You know, what they're doing is our lifeblood of getting in and out of that, that location. And we pay a lot of attention to taking good care of them. But we want to be very, you know, you want to, the, the the last resort is you just need someone important enough that needs to get that connection and to get sorted. <laughs> so so it's it's a that that's usually when there's a CEO or a C C level then then things happen. But you don't want to use that. You want to try to get that done without that process. But it sometimes that's what you end up with. Go ahead, Tom. And in my last position, having been the guy who sat in that chair, uh, let us know ahead of time. Don't come in at the last minute. We will work with you. We can work with you, but we need to make sure that we're not causing a security problem. And by head of time, if, unless we were asked to do it at the, at the last minute, we will be talking to IT two weeks before, minimum, minimum two weeks before we need it. Um, and oftentimes as much as a month before we need it. Like, the, And we have little forms of like, this is what, when we used to do hangouts, we'd be like, we had a form that we'd send IT that said, this is what we need. We need 1935. We need 80. We need this. We need this. We need this. And this is the configuration. And we'd send it out to them the moment we got the the, the call um, to make sure that they had the time to think about it. And then we'd have lots of meetings with them, explain why we needed it and, and work with them to figure it out. But it takes time. Um, next question. Ponce Robles in Mexico City. What are your diagnostic tools when troubleshooting issues? You know, I think that, you know, for us, the, the, I, other people might have it. For me, it's mostly trace route, you know, pings. You know, those are the most basic ones that, that you're trying to figure out what's what it's actually going through. Link runners and, and um, you know, those types of things are other tools that we use, hardware tools that we use to, to make that work. Um, there's some bigger tools, but we don't usually use them on site. Next question. Uh, from um, Jesse Mills in San Francisco, the Bay Area, how should uh, QoS be prioritized and PTP be set up in multi-use networks with streaming video over IP, audio over IP, and other use? Go ahead, John. So if you're using VLANs to segment the traffic and you're not having to jump from switch to switch, um, the actual prioritization isn't going to matter. Um, prioritization comes in when you're going to have a converging of multiple networks and the switch is going to have to know which one is going to be processed first. Um, so think about it. If you have your regular desktop network and your phone network, um, those two networks are going through multiple devices and you want to understand that traffic, which one needs to get to its destination first, the phone traffic versus your typical standard desktop traffic is what's going to happen there. Um, I wouldn't not worry about it as long as you are segmenting. Like if all your Dante's all together, all of it needs to happen at the same time. If you start jumping across multiple layer three connections, then you should worry about tagging and, and managing it from there. Go ahead, Jason. I'll answer this for Dante. Um, QoS with four Qs, uh, DSCP, which is diff serve uh, code point QoS with strict priority, and then a managed switch um, to provide the detailed information about how each you know network and error counter and whatnot actually works. 
Next question. From Rob Collins in uh, Raymore, Missouri. How do you label your networks to know what's where for when you need to find something? Go ahead, Jeff. Color codes for us. So we have specific color codes and labels that are actually on the switches themselves. And then then the Sharpie to strike out said color code and write in what it's actually been changed to the last 12 times, if it happens. Next question. From Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area, he says, do folks run their NDI discovery servers on virtual machines? Is that safer or more reliable than a separate computer? Go, Jeff. For us, we're running in a virtual machines some. It, it really depends on the, in the infrastructure that we have. It really will run on pretty much any machine that you have that's not overtaxed. It doesn't take a lot of uh, a lot of power. So the little nooks we have, like a i3, I think, is it's little bitty tiny thing, and it, it's just to run a browser, and then that runs uh, NDI discovery in the background. So for me to virtualize it, it's a lot more work than it is just just throw it down, but we do have it virtualized also. In our cloud infrastructure, it runs on a specific instance because I want that to just do its thing. And it doesn't cost me anything because it's such a small instance. It's part of the free package with AWS. Well, thanks to this incredible panel um, that, that, that came together for this second hour. And hopefully we'll get more of this panel back so that we can answer these questions in the first hour on Fridays. So we're, we're hoping to keep on building Fridays up as this. We're talking about a lot of things around logistics and tech and the back-end tech that require, that's required there. But we hope to make Fridays really more and more of this, uh, you know, a technical area where if you ask these questions, even in the first hour, uh, you'll get those answers. So, um, so, but I, just a really, really great um, coverage of uh, AV over IP. So, I want to thank the panelists, the incredible panelists that showed up today, uh, to make sure that they could answer and we could answer those questions effectively. So, thank you very much for your contribution, and thanks to the the the, uh, the producers. I mean, a great set of questions that really drove this conversation forward. We really appreciate your contribution. We can't do it without you. <laughs> we can't if you don't ask any questions. This is a really short show, so we really appreciate your contribution. And thanks to the incredible team on. On the back end, the development team, the management team, the the live teams uh, for for the contribution uh, that that you make to making this happen every single day. Uh, a reminder that uh, first Saturday of the month uh, we have our, our our volunteer meeting. So if you're interested in in being part of these teams, uh, go ahead and uh, join us on the first uh, Saturday of every month. Uh, so stay tuned uh, for more information about that. It's in the emails that go out. Um, we traveled eighty thousand miles, one hundred twenty nine thousand. Um, kilometers, and that is 636 bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Since the VP is such a VIP, shouldn't the VP's VOIP be on a CTV? Wow. I don't know if it's with network is anonymous. <laughs> I always think when we're getting people connected for an event, they're always like, well, the router is really far away. And I'm like, how far away? It might be 60 feet. And I'm like, I'll send you an ethernet. <laughs> Go find it. All right. It's nothing in bananas.